Hey everybody, it's Matt. Welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you automatically get our weekly episodes. And you might want to subscribe to our Journey Callaway YouTube channel as well. You'll find messages, music, interviews, inspiring stories, and more for you right there. Now, I hope this episode helps you take your next step in following Jesus. Well, hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Today's going to be a little different, but if it's your first time, you couldn't have picked a better day because while it's different today, it is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Matter of fact, it gets really close to rivaling Easter, and I will tell you why in just a minute. First, I want us to think about this. Whenever we, and by we I mean Christians, and if you're not a follower of Jesus or you're not really a church person, then you can sit this part out and go, yep, that drives me nuts about Christians too. But whenever we as Christians face difficulty, suffering, pain of any kind, well, American Christians ask questions like this. Well, why, this, why is this happening to me? And is God judging me? Is God angry with me? Questions like that have been rattling around throughout this pandemic, and along with that, because all of us are going through it together, Christians are asking questions like, was it the end of the world? Is God trying to judge America? Is God judging our world? Is a rapture about to happen? A lot of questions. Quite honestly, we've, we've all asked those questions, but they're just not helpful questions. They aren't. They're not helpful at all. As a matter of fact, the truth is, whenever we ask these questions, we are revealing our very short-sighted or limited perspective. Because you know this, there have been Christians and there have been people from previous generations who have suffered and endured far more than we're enduring right now. And there are people in our current world, current generations of people in other parts of the world who are enduring and suffering far more than we're suffering as American Christians. So honestly, when we ask these questions, all we're doing is, well, we're revealing the fact that we tend to have a low tolerance for pain, and we tend to be pretty me-centered, and we tend to believe God's going to make us happy and he's going to make our life easy. Whether we knowingly or unknowingly believe those things, they tend to come out when we ask these questions, and none of that is true. So what I want to do today for the next few minutes is I want to talk about this. What questions should we be asking? Whenever we encounter difficulties, pressures, stress, tension, whenever we go through suffering, pain, discomfort, what are the questions we ought to be asking? And guess what? This, for those of us who are Christians, this is really easy to know. And the reason it's easy to know is because the New Testament reveals it. Because the early followers of Jesus, well, they faced an epidemic, if you will. They faced difficulty at a global level. And as they went through a natural disaster at a global level, well, the New Testament tells us exactly what they paid attention to and exactly the questions that they asked. So let me give you a little background first. If you're not familiar, after the resurrection of Jesus, the first church began, was birthed right there in Jerusalem in the region of Judea in the nation of Israel. The problem was, as this first church got off the ground, they were not popular with either the Roman Empire, the powers that be there, or the Jewish religious leaders, the power that be there, and they found themselves caught in between and eventually crushed in between these two powers. An open season broke out against followers of Jesus. Persecution began. The very first Christian there in the church in Jerusalem who was arrested for his faith was named Stephen. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Interesting guy. Stephen was a great leader, but Stephen was arrested because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. And the problem was when the Jewish religious leaders arrested him, the Roman leaders, Pilate, the governor in particular, did nothing. He had no problem with it. And so the Jewish religious leaders were emboldened and they thought, we can do with him whatever they want. 
but they made a mistake. They brought him in front of all of them, and they gave him a microphone. And Stephen began to explain to them why they had missed the boat. While Jesus had come, God in human flesh, they had killed him, and they better say they're sorry and repent because they were on the wrong side. Well, you can imagine when Stephen does this, it infuriates them to the point that they grab him, they drag him out of the assembly that they're in, they drag him outside the city, and they all pick up stones, and they stone him to death. I mean, that is a gruesome death. And then when that happened, again, Pilate did nothing, and they realized, oh my goodness, well, if we can do it to Stephen and get away with it, we can do it to whoever. Now, on the day that Stephen was stoned, there was a man there participating by the name of Saul. This was his Jewish name. You may know him by his Roman name, Paul. That same guy. But he didn't start on the side of Christians, and he certainly didn't start on the side of Jesus. And Saul became so emboldened by what he saw, and he so hated these followers of Jesus, that he began to take SWAT teams, if you will, and he would storm into the homes of Christians and drag out as many as he could. He had several arrested. He had some killed. And then that sparked a, a persecution that scattered these Christians in Jerusalem all over the region and all over the Roman Empire throughout the known world at that time. Well, once Saul had done his work there in Jerusalem and felt like he had a really good handle on the Christians there, well, then he got permission to travel to Damascus. Now, this wasn't some quick day trip. This was, in those days, a two-week trip to get from Jerusalem to Damascus. That is how committed Saul was to ending this movement of Christians. But, as you may know, along the way to Damascus on the road, he had an encounter with the living Jesus. He did a 180 when Saul joined the losing team. Doesn't make a lot of sense apart from the fact that that experience really happened. So he joins the losing team. He becomes a follower of Jesus, and the persecution, it doesn't go away, but it begins to subside just a little bit on Christians. And that is where we're going to pick up our story that Luke, who was a medical doctor in the first century and ended up traveling around with Saul, who we know as Paul, well, Luke records for us the history of the early church in a book we call Acts. And Luke tells us what happens next in Acts chapter 11. Here's what he says. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution, talking about these Christians in Jerusalem, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, well, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. And the reason they only did among Jews is because they were still convinced that this message of Jesus, the forgiveness of God, well, it was only available to Jewish people. They were certain they were God's favorites, and they were God's only. So they didn't even worry about telling non-Jewish people, because clearly, this is just for us. We're the only ones who can have a relationship with God that's personal. But there were some, not many, but there were some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, to non-Jewish people, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus, which would have made them all go, whoa, why would you even be doing that? You're wasting your time. But to everyone's surprise, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed who were not Jewish, and they turned to the Lord. Now, before we go on with this story, let me just pause right here for a second, because here's what I love about this. God took something that was so painful for these Christians, these followers of Jesus, this persecution they were having to go through. He took something so painful and he turned it into something incredibly positive. Out of a persecution, he ended up introducing thousands and thousands and thousands of people to his love and to his grace. Now, I'll just tell you, this is what I hope is our story on the other side of the pandemic. Our pandemic is nothing compared to the persecution that these early followers of Jesus experienced. 
But my hope is on the other side, when we meet again, and we're closer to that than we're further away, when we're able to meet in person again, well, I hope our story is, oh my goodness, that was difficult. But look at how God used it to inspire people to follow him. Look at how God used it to help people experience his grace and his love. People who wouldn't have experienced it any other way if we hadn't have gone through something that was painful and difficult. Well, anyway, back to Luke's story. Here's what he writes next. News of this, of these non-Jewish people becoming followers of Jesus, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. In other words, news got back that, hey, we got so many new Christians here, we need some backup. We need somebody to come and help us teach them everything they need to know about Jesus. And so Luke tells us when Barnabas went, and when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done in these Gentile people, he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain uh, true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he's, the, Luke tells us Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And look at this. A great number of people were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas gets there. They've already seen bunches of people come to faith. And then hundreds more come to faith once Barnabas gets there. And now Barnabas realizes, oh man, I can't handle this. I need some backup too. So Luke tells us, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for our friend Saul, who has gone to Tarsus after he's become a follower of Jesus so that he can learn more about the teachings of Jesus. And when Barnabas found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met uh, with the church, and they taught great numbers of people. And then Luke tells us just an interesting side. The disciples, well, they were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, before we go on in the story, because it's about to pick up, but the thing I don't want you to miss that you wouldn't know on your own is the cultures and the people in Antioch and in Jerusalem. Well, they were two totally different cultures with two totally different groups of people. In the first century, these people, they wouldn't have really known each other. They would rarely have communication with each other. The Antioch, the city of Antioch, it was 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, let me just put that in perspective. Today, we could travel around the entire world faster than they could travel from Jerusalem to Antioch in the first century. So literally, in their context, these two cities, they were like worlds apart. They were like half a world away. They had very little in common. In Jerusalem, it was primarily all Jewish people in the church, Jewish people who had been persecuted, Jewish people who had had to uh, fend for their lives, but Jewish people who believed and had been taught and raised in Judaism and had been waiting for the Messiah. You go to Antioch, you step into the church in Antioch, well, there are all kinds of races. It's multi-ethnic, multi-racial. These people, they were Gentile people. They hadn't grown up in Judaism. They, they hadn't learned all of the things and all the foundations of the faith ahead of time. These were people who, well, they knew very little. This whole idea of following Jesus, it was entirely fresh and new to them. These two groups of people had so little in common. But they're about to find some common ground. And this is where Luke tells us the story picks up. Here's what he says next. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread. Now, I want you to notice this. Over the entire Roman world, not just over Antioch, not just over Jerusalem. This famine was going to spread throughout the entire Roman world. Now... Again, none of us like to experience famines today, but it's nothing like in the first century when they couldn't store food. They, they weren't able to, to put food back for a year. 
This was one of those deals that when a famine struck, it could wipe out entire cities. It could wipe out entire regions. In some cases, it could wipe out entire generations. And in this case, they weren't going to be able to travel to another region of the Roman Empire and find food. This famine was going to hit all the way across the board. This could potentially be devastating for everyone. And Luke, remember, he's giving us a historical account, right? He's, he's writing this after the fact. And so Luke lets us know that this happened during the reign of Claudius, Emperor Claudius, Emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, here's what I want you to notice. When these early Christians discovered this, and as they went through this famine, there was no indication whatsoever that they asked the questions that all of us American Christians seem to ask. They didn't ask, why is this famine happening to us? Well, we're following Jesus now. Shouldn't he you know, make sure this pain doesn't show up in our lives? They, they didn't ask the questions, was well, God angry with us? Is God mad at us? Is he judging us? They didn't even ask, is this the end? You think God's judging the whole Roman Empire for their sins? You know, Maybe he's trying to bring the, the Roman Empire to God. No, no, they didn't ask any of those questions. They asked three very different questions. You're about to see this. They asked, who's going to be most at risk? How can we help them? And who should we send? That's it. That's all they asked. They, they didn't struggle or wrestle through, is this the end of time? Is the rapture coming soon? Is Jesus coming back? Did we sin in some way that brought this on us? Nope. They just asked, okay, well, who's going to be most impacted? Who's most at risk by this famine? How can we help? And... Who should we send? And as the Christians in Antioch asked those questions, here's the conclusion they came to. Luke tells us the disciples there in Antioch, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Well, wait a minute. Aren't all of you Christians in Antioch, at, you know, aren't you in trouble too? Isn't this a threat to you as well? well? Yeah, it's a threat. But they looked at their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and they went, oh man, You've been kicked out of the temple there. You've got nobody fending for you. You're right at the heart of the Jewish religious power and the Roman power. You're most at risk. You are most vulnerable. So yeah, this is going to impact us. This is going to hurt us. This famine's going to be hard on us. But you're more at risk than we are. So we're going to help you. And here's what they did. They did this sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. They all gave as much as each one was able to give. And then they gave it to Barnabas and Saul and said, take this back to those Christians in Jerusalem. And you let them know that we're here for them. You let them know that we care. You let them know they're not alone. Now, here's what I do not want you to miss. They were extending this type of unprecedented, extravagant generosity. One, in a time when they were going to have need as well. And they were doing it for people that they had never met. As a matter of fact, they were doing it for people who were nothing like them. These weren't people who were, quote unquote, their people. These weren't people who'd grown up in their town. These weren't people who could help them in any way. These were just people that they felt like they needed to step in and be for because they were most vulnerable at the moment. And so at their own personal cost and their own personal sacrifice, they helped someone else who was in great need, even though they were in need themselves. Why in the world would they do that? Simple. <laughs> because they had experienced the grace of God. 
and they had experienced the generosity of Jesus. They understood, wait a minute, God so loved the world that he gave for me, so I'm going to give for the person beside me. God so loved the world that he gave to me, so I'm going to reflect the same generosity Jesus has shown me, and I'm going to give in return. I'm going to love those brothers and sisters in Jerusalem just like Jesus has loved us. We are going to do what love requires of us. That is why they gave. That's why they sacrificed. That is why they loved. And that is what you and I, as a church, well, that's what we're called to do. This is our example. This is our model. These are the questions we ought to be asking in the middle of painful or difficult situations. We ought to be asking, who's most at risk? Well, how can we help? And who should we send? Now, collectively as a church, I've been so proud of you because we have been able to rally together this year in spite of the fact that we have had needs, in spite of the fact that the pandemic has impacted us, in spite of the fact that we don't have as much as we did have as we've gone through this, we have been able to rally and still ask those questions and meet needs. And I want you to know you've done collectively a tremendous, tremendous job. So far this year, we have given $63,120 to help encourage, meet needs, serve people who are at risk in our communities. Just this year alone. That's how much we've been able to give away. And we haven't given it because we've had it sitting there as surplus and we just were like, well, it's not going to cost us anything. No, it's cost us to do this. But we just were convinced, based on the model and the example of these early Christians in Antioch, that you know what? When we ask the same questions that they ask, well, there's somebody in our community, they're more at risk than we are, and so we're going to step in and do what we can. Now, if you're not familiar with our church, you need to know this isn't something new for us this year. This is just part of who we are. It's part of the DNA of the people who are a part of our movement. Because over the course of 15 years since we began this church, collectively, we have given back $965,123 into our communities. And we haven't done it by somebody coming along, dropping in a big six-figure gift that we gave away. No. We've been able to give this amount because people have given as they're able over and over and over again, year after year after year. And we have been able to meet needs and serve people and support organizations that are making a difference in our communities. That's a pretty amazing number. I'll tell you, I'm pretty excited about the fact that we're getting ready to do more and we've got a great opportunity to cross $1 million that we've given back in 15 years. Who would have thought that? That's, that's remarkable. Speaking of, this is why today is one of my favorite Sundays. So if you're new with us and you haven't been through this season before, let me tell you what we do. Every year about this time, we do an offering that we call our Christmas for Callaway offering. And the point behind this offering is we decided a long time ago, instead of trying to compete with nonprofit organizations in our community, well, why create or recreate what they're already doing and try to do it ourselves? Let's just identify the nonprofits who are making the biggest difference in our communities and let's come alongside them and support them and resource them and help them go further faster. And so every year we vet out and have conversations with a lot of nonprofits and we narrow it down to the three or four or five that we feel like we could make the biggest impact in what they're doing this year. So that's what we've done. And these nonprofits and these needs that they meet, they tend to revolve around four key needs in our communities. They revolve around hunger, homelessness, at-risk children, and foster care. And again this year, this is what ours is going to revolve around. 
So we had a small volunteer team that we sent out to talk to nonprofits in our community who address these needs. And these volunteers asked them two questions. What would make a big difference for you? And what would help you make a big difference? And we heard the responses that they gave us back. And now, without them knowing it, what we're going to try to do is today we're going to try to fund all of those needs that they have. We're going to try to help organizations like Needline who are feeding 1,200, 1,300 families every single month, providing food, providing hygiene products, providing support and care for them. We're going to step in and we're going to try to help organizations like Hope Callaway who are making sure that people in our community don't become homeless, that they have a place to stay, that they teach them the life skills that they need to help them get back on their feet, that they give them a plan and help them get a fresh start. We're going to help organizations like CASA who advocate for children who are at risk, who step in and they help families where there are at-risk situations. They try to help the whole family get healthy again so those kids can get back in a healthy home because there's nothing better for them than that. We're going to try to help organizations like our family resource centers at, at our school systems where there are kids that they see that are falling through the cracks that, you know what, they need some clothes, they need some shoes, they just need some basic necessities so they can function better and learn better at school. Well, we're going to step in like we've done in the past and we're going to take those kids on shopping spree and we're going to help them buy whatever it is they need. And we're going to step in and help organizations like Moses Basket who whenever a child gets placed in foster care and that call comes and some of your foster uh, parents, you understand this, foster families, that call can come at any point, but whenever it comes, Moses Basket steps in and they provide the basic necessities that that foster family and that foster child is going to need, whether it's pajamas or toys or supplies or diapers or whatever the case may be. They step in, they try to provide to get that family and that kid off to a great start. There's some extraordinary organizations that we want to be able to help. So what we did is we talked to them all and we said, what do you need? And then we tallied it up and it's going to take for us to do some of these, it'll take at least 40,000. For us to be able to meet all of the needs and provide everything that would make a big difference for them, it'll take about $60,000. Normally we are offering every year, we give more than $60,000 away. I don't know what it's going to look like in the pandemic, but I hope it's bigger than ever because the need is greater than ever. But if you're with us for the first time, what I want you to know is we don't ever set a financial goal, okay? So success for us is not based on, well, do we hit this amount of money or this amount of money? Nope. Here's our goal. We're asking 100% of you to give. This is our only goal we ever set. It's a participation goal. We want 100% of you to give, and here's our promise. We're giving 100% of it away. Every single penny. We don't keep any of it. We give it all away, and I think this is the best part, we show you what we did with it. We video us giving it away, and we let you see the impact that it's going to make. So I would love for you to be a part of that. If you've been a part of our church for a while, I hope you'll participate. If you've connected with us since COVID hit in March, I hope you'll participate. If you've only watched us from online, I don't care where you are in the world, I hope you'll participate in this. Because this doesn't benefit us. This benefits the people around us who need us most. And this is one way we follow the model and the example of those early Christians there in Antioch. Now, if you're sitting there going, why in the world would a church do this? I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We haven't been able to meet yet. It certainly impacted negatively our financial situation. Why would we keep giving money away when 
we could use it ourselves. Well, that's a great question. If I can give you my simple to the point answer, it's this. We do it because everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. So we don't care if we're helping people who believe like us or not. We don't care if we're helping people who behave like us or not. These don't have to be Christian nonprofit organizations. We're not helping just Christian people. We do it because we are convinced that every single person matters to God, whether God matters to that person or not. So I want to invite you to join me in giving as big as you can possibly give, giving like the Christians in Antioch as much as you are able to help people who are more at risk than we are right now. So here's how you can give. You can go to givejourney.com. If you have our app, you can just open up our app and click on the Give tab. If you use either one of these options, you're going to select the Christmas for Callaway Fund. And every penny you give us, we will turn right around and give away. Or for those of you who still don't like giving online, I get it. You can send a check to P.O. Box 1692, Murray, Kentucky, 42071, and we will put your money right there with it. You can just put Christmas for Calway in the memo, and we will know exactly what to do with that and where to give it away. Listen, in our current climate, in our current season, let me tell you what our communities need to continue to see from us. The people who are far from God, the people who don't understand God loves them, the people who've turned their back on God, the people who don't want anything to do with church anymore. They don't need to see Christians who are thinking about themselves and taking care of themselves. They need to see Christians who demonstrate the love of God in a very tangible way through generosity. And that's what we're about to do again. We're going to unleash another unprecedented wave of generosity in our communities. Because it is the most tangible way to show people that God is for them and, more importantly, that God loves them. So, on your mark, get set. I want you to go and give big, and let's be four, because four gives more. Hey, if you'd like more content like this, subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our Journey Callaway app to access all of our recent message content. And our app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. For more information on our church, be sure to visit journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Thanks for listening.